Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woo-hoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woo-hoo! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! Woo-hoo! <laughs> yeah, this is Tom Donaldson with the Donaldson Files with Coco Konski. Uh, we're... And Coco is back again from her sabbatical. Uh, welcome back, Coco. Uh, Thank let me you. Try that. Yeah. All right. I have to apologize because I had you on mute for a quick second and I didn't quite. So if Aww. you want to go ahead and redo your introduction, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> How you sure. doing, Coco? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, you know what? I am doing so amazing, honestly. Um, I took a little mini break from politics for about like a week and a half and um, I will tell you it was super nice <laughs> I, I've i been doing some kind of like investing um, recently um, one of the things that I don't know if you've heard about this called the pie currency Have, do you know anything about that? No go ahead alright well I don't really know much either right <laughs> But um, years and years ago, I had the opportunity to invest in Bitcoin, and I did not, and I am killing myself over that. So when a really good friend of mine told me about Pi Currency, I was like, okay, screw it, uh, I'm in. Because I, I had, back in 2008, I had the chance to, like, invest 1,000 shares in Bitcoins, and I am very pissed off because right now I'd be worth $11 million. So um, I am not letting – another opportunity just kind of passed me by. So I started, uh, I started doing that this morning. So I, I also do, um, I don't know if you guys have Robinhood, which is like a uh, kind of penny, not penny stocks, because that's the wrong word, but they're just like, like split stocks. So I've been doing that as well. Um, so I always think investing money is like a really good thing. Um, so that, that's literally what I've been doing the past couple of weeks. I, I'm at the stock market, so, yeah. um, All right. that's what I've been doing. <laughs> All right. Well, like I say, I've not gotten into cryptocurrency as yet because I, it's one of those things where well, I, yeah. I can say, it's, I, mean, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not yet, cause I'm not yet comfortable with the idea of an alternative currency at this moment, but who knows? Well, I'm not either, keep, but uh, you know what? Hell, it, I mean, I'm not either, but you know what? Um, I I really kick myself every day that I didn't invest when I had the pro- the opportunity to back yeah. in 08. And um, because <laughs> right now, one Bitcoin, Tom, is worth $11,000. So, hmm. yeah. you know, uh, yeah. I kind of kick myself on that. Yeah. Okay. By the way, I'm Tom Donaldson. I am with the chairman of America's PAC and Amer- project director of America's Majority Foundation. And Coco, why don't you tell everybody what it is you do other than uh, invest in uh, cryptocurrency? Invest money? Yes. Um, yeah. Hey, guys, what's up? My name's Coco. You guys obviously know me from the show. Um, I also am a writer. I work in the entertainment industry. Um, and, yeah, I, I really just write. <laughs> That's all I do. 
So, all right, and, and also, and for those people who were expecting Justin Hart tonight, well, Justin was last uh, had, you know, basically had one of these things we had to switch our guests because our present guest had a, of all things, a COVID meeting at his university, uh-huh. so he had to go to that, and so Justin took oh. his place. And then Real Riley, who's a professor at Kentucky State University Political Science, is on is on tonight, and he's going to discuss a groundbreaking study. Uh, and I would say for uh, public consumption and uh, uh, America's PAC and America's Majority Foundation funded this study. Uh, but there are some very interesting groundbreaking information is within this study, and it's a follow-up on the study, and actually it's kind of a more of an in-depth follow-up study that he did earlier about three or four months ago on the impact of lockdown versus non-lockdown states. And uh, uh, Will, how's it going? And, thank, and welcome to the show. Yeah, it's going pretty well. Uh, good to be back on the show. And yeah, I'm actually on the task force for my university and for this region of Kentucky that's looking at how to deal with COVID-19. Um, you know, everything oh. from are there enough cleaning supplies available to, you know, class and race disparities involved with that. So we were we were ironically actually talking about the disease uh, yesterday. By the way, I agree with Coco about crypto, Tom. It sounded like you're a little, a little you. skeptical of crypto. I'm, I'm a Thank crypto you. bull. I mean, I was um, my like <laughs> tribe in high school and college was sort of rave scene. And there are a lot of would be hackers in that environment. Right. And when Bitcoin first too. came out. Yeah, when it, then you know when Bitcoin first came out, people thought it was a yeah. joke. People were buying yeah. 82 Bitcoins on like the first e-exchanges and they'd order pizza with them and stuff. Um, yeah. The guy who did that, yeah. and this isn't funny at all, but consider it suicide because a Bitcoin right now is worth uh, oh, between yeah. eleven and 14000 So he sold 80 exactly. of them and he would have been, I mean, a multi, not a multi, he would have been a millionaire counting, you know, everything well, attended to that. Yeah. Uh, I have to tell you something, though, real quick. I had a friend of mine who was a complete stoner um, back in 08. He believed in the Illuminati and every single conspiracy theory that you could think of, like lizard people. He believed in it, okay? And, you know, he started talking to me about this. He goes, his father had died, left him a, a small inheritance, and he invested all of it into Bitcoin. And now, like, I looked it up. He's probably worth now like fourteen, fifteen million dollars, and now like I, I literally want to shoot myself over that. I want to kill myself for not listening to him. A lot so, of my buddies from that, actually, whether it was through music or through the, the game, just to put it that way, or through perfectly straight jobs that you get through connections at a big city like Chicago, stock right. brokerage itself, are now millionaires. Right. I mean, I'm not doing very badly myself, but it's weird to get a right. call from someone in the suburbs, you know talking about their investments in their barbecue grill and just to remember them back in the kind of that one movie kids era, just, you know, doing their thing. Exactly. But um, I actually think that those platforms like Robinhood, which is named that for a reason, have done uh, from a capitalist angle a lot to pull people out of poverty and into the middle class. Like my Robinhood investment tip is, yeah. so they're really only a few basic investment tips. I mean, like everyone knows buy low, sell high. So, for example, right. if a company is going through some turmoil with the board of directors, but you know they're going to get out of that, and it's a blue chip like Nike, if you're ethically comfortable with that company, always buy at that point. It's going to increase four or 500%. But another market right. tip that I would say is invest in things that can't go down. 
So, for example, something that I've bought that I'm very open about is a lot of legal medical weed, like Viking Therapeutics. Oh, yeah. This is the largest marijuana company in the country, Sensei Seeds. Any of any of those serious players, those people that were winning, frankly, winning cannabis cups when weed was illegal and you had to cross the border to do that, they have an entire infrastructure set up to sell this product that just now became legal. So if you're buying a stock for seven dollars, I mean that's going to be something that's worth one hundred fifty dollars, you know, not long down the road. So yeah, I'm investing definitely. It's a lot better than just putting your money in sort of mattress and handgun financial, which I think is what a lot of people are very comfortable with through about 25. Like I have friends that still don't trust banks, but the reality is that if you have, I mean, if you have a securitized app on your phone or on your computer for a serious player like Robinhood or E-Trade, that's a great place to put your money. I I actually, I'm really happy you mentioned that because uh, my boyfriend really got me into Robinhood because, you know, he works in post production. He's a film editor, and you know okay. he will he will not be working till January because of oh yeah of okay. COVID yeah like he like there's no there's nothing in entertainment right now. So he had been he's been doing Robin Hood because a friend of his actually made something like uh, two hundred thousand in like four or five months. Like obviously he's mm-hmm. not going to be doing that, but. So he started getting into it, and then I, I was just like, okay, well, then I got into it. And then he talked about the pie currency, which is a very brand-new thing. It's like only, like, what, 34,000 people are, are in on it right now. And so um, I didn't want to pass the opportunity, especially with the Bitcoin. So I thought, you know what, whatever. Like, you know, just invest, like, minimum or whatever you want. And it, you, just, you just basically just see your money grow. So I'm hoping that uh, Pi Currency actually does take off. But yeah. uh, I guess you never really know. No. The only question – go ahead. Just no, last, last very quick comment on this because it's kind of a side yeah. topic. But the, the only real risk with that kind of thing is that you don't know which one is going to blow up. Like right. not, not just keep going through like you know stories about our friends. Some of them got rich. Some of them got poor. But I had right. a buddy that invested very heavily in social media predicting that social media was going to blow up thinking this is back when guys first started investing like maybe 2006 like in my group not among humans but um the product the product that he bought though was myspace which at the time was Ah. the unchallenged largest player in social media like facebook was considered wonky even a bit racist they were still only available on a few college campuses you had put full first and last name and they changed those policies over the next like two years and myspace went bankrupt so if you invest a huge amount of money like if you put all your money in Ethereum and it turned out that Pi and Bitcoin both beat ETH, there's only room for a couple of those currencies and then you're broke. The thing with stuff like Pi though, like what I do when I do that kind of investment is put a lot of money in separate different low cost currencies. So like I actually, I do some day trading and I recently bought Dogecoin, which is a, sort of okay. a joke. It's a currency that's based around a meme. Um, and that goes up and down in value based on kind of the willingness of internet culture to say it has value. It says some interesting things about money overall, by the way. That's actually but, um, really cool. That sounds – what's it called again? D-O-G-E-C-O-I-N. I would I – would, I mean, I'm not going to give a formal investment recommendation. Yeah, but, well, but, I mean, like, it, for, yeah, you and, yeah. for you and listeners, though, I mean, that's, that's something that is reasonable to invest in. Like, I bought Dogecoin at, like, 10 cents. And more and more people started coming into the community that was aware of it. Like they bought a race car at one point. So, I mean, again, if you buy (laughs) 10,000 shares of something 
at 10 right. cents and that goes up to $3. I mean, you've made 290 times 10,000. Now, you know, I also okay, have a master of my yeah. student loan debt yeah, and I, yeah, I give yeah, to charity, that, yeah. you know. Yeah, but exactly so right. I'm yeah, not balling, but yeah, hold on that thought. Yeah, hold, we're going to talk right back about that. We're we're going to go yeah, we'll to talk, yeah. break. Sure. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at BlogTalkRadio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. This is Tom Donaldson back on the Donaldson Files with Coco Konsky and Dr. Will Riley on the Bachelor News Radio Network. By the way, if you want to participate in tonight's show, it's 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. And also, if you want to uh, listen to this show on a daily basis on the bachelornews.airtime.pro, we're on every day at... 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and midnight and 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Bachelor News Radio Network on bachelornews.airtime.pro to get everything. All right, let's get it. You know, we well, I, get I into really, the, quick, I, I, well, really yeah, quick, I just yeah. want to say something. So, um, you know when the whole Tesla and Apple split stock happened, uh, like, what was it, two days ago or something like that? And uh, mm-hmm. it was really funny because my boyfriend kind of knew it was going to happen. I don't know how, but he ended up, you know, uh, with Robin Hood, he ended up, I guess, splitting. And and it, it's crazy because now he owns, like, well, like, I, I don't even know how many shares of Apple he owns right now. But I, I just think Robin Hood's really good for starters, like people who wa- don't really know about investing um, but kind of want to give it a go. And, you know, you're not paying, like, a huge amount for these stocks. So I, I always, I'm always a fan of that stuff. Yeah, I, I frankly, first of all, I think investing is something that people like. The analogy that I use is like picking the NCAA tournament, where if you uh-huh. have a lot of broy guy friends, people treat this like it's rocket science. Like every single oh, like, game totally. is broken Absolutely. down. The the seventh seed might get the eleventh this time. I win money every year um, when I do this, and I just pick the highest ranked team to win in every bracket. And it happens almost all of the time that, like, Duke or Kentucky or one of the top four overall seeds wins. So I I don't want to take the fun out of it. I always cheer for, like, the schools I went to, like U of I. But investing is pretty much the same thing. Like, buy low, sell high, um, split stocks like your boyfriend did, if possible, if you have a tool like Robin Hood. You know, pick things that have to go up because the industry has just been allowed to, to flourish. And if you are going to buy mainstream stock, just sort of buy blue chips. Like, I mean, I don't think Amazon is going to go down in the next 30 years. And that's pretty much it. If you do those four things, you'll have a pretty solid income from the market every year. I I absolutely agree. And I I think it's a great way to, like, 
kind of like, you know, you're saving your money, but you also like don't want to rely on your job for the rest of your life. So you, you know, you, you want to invest, invest. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people can't afford real estate investments. Like that's fine. But I think, you know, just, just investing in things that, you know, like I've always invested in cannabis for sure. Like, especially out here in California. Um, and, a lot of the stuff is also like like techie stuff. I like to invest in, in tech stuff. I'm a big I'm a mm-hmm. big tech nerd, so um, I think you can't really go wrong with with anything like that. Yeah, my maybe last bit on this. I think, I think Tom might want to ask ask some of these COVID questions. Yeah. But like my partner's investment advice is just that she will invest in things that she uses that are good. Absolutely, like, I do that as well. Literally, like the, the car she like so she would buy like Toyota or Mercedes stock or like. The liquor she right. drinks, I forget what it is, but it's like the the company that makes that, that owns, you know, Seagram's and all that is incorporated in uh, France okay, and she yeah. owns that stock and so on. You know, right. like women's clothing brands. And I mean, her portfolio is doing as well as mine. So that that's an easy on the ground way to pick things out. Like you look at products that you use, that you know work, that you know there's a base of people using. And generally, when people lose their shirt, what they try to do is pick something that looks cool, but that they don't really know anything about, like Twitter, for example, where the idea uh, of this yeah. has to go up. This is, this is fun. This is where, like, you know, the young knowledge workers insult each other. But it turned out Twitter only has a tenth the actual active users of Facebook and is kind of badly managed. So... Well, the stock's just been stable or it's gone down for now about 10 years. So, I mean, again, you know, buy low, sell high, pick what you know, pick blue chips, pick hot new brands, and you should be pretty good. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's really great advice. I mean, yeah, I like I said, I love Robinhood just because I can play with it during the day and it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I tend to invest in things that, like, like you said, like I use, you know, whether it's like fitness equipment, um, also, like skincare, um, if you like a lot of the high end skincare, um, I, I I tend to invest like in some type of product or whatnot. Um, and and again, like I, I I actually had growing up, my my dad bought me like a few stocks in Apple, and I'm not allowed to touch that right now. So um, you know that 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 was like back in 2002 when the iPod yeah. really first came out. So, uh, yeah, so but I still kick myself that I didn't invest in Bitcoin, even though my crazy friend told me I should, and I probably should have listened to him. Um, I didn't, so here I am. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, before we, uh, at the end of the show, we may want to get back to Bitcoin, because I'm going to ask the both ah. a couple of ideas. Because there are a couple of ideas that just popped in my head. Uh, for those All people right. who read your F.A. Hayek and alternative currency, because he does discuss, he did discuss that. So, but uh-huh. I did bring you up for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get that out. You know, I guess it's almost like we'll get that out of the way first. Uh, I, again, I will say this as I stated at the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, America's Back, America's Majority Foundation did sponsor the study, and. And it kind of started off with the idea that you have already looked at in the past lockdown versus not lockdown states. So this was uh-huh. in many ways something you've already researched. So basically kind of summarize what it is you were looking at in this particular study. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, your group, legitimate politically associated organization, asked me in a consulting role, which I do a pretty fair amount of, to look at essentially how state behavior affected what you could call COVID-19 outcomes. I mean, cases, deaths, if we're being frank, uh, cases per million, deaths per million. You and I also both wanted to look specifically at outcomes among you know, people of color, quote-unquote POC, so we broke that out. But uh, the two things that I was interested in, and I think you were, you were interested in, that you encouraged, were looking at whether, quote-unquote, red or blue states did better against COVID-19, because there's been a lot of kind of crap throwing back and forth between, like, Cuomo and the southern state governor. So overall, was there a difference? And at whether lockdowns, with everything adjusted for, like how many cases you had at the time of the lockdown, um, you know, population, whether those things really affected COVID outcomes. And I don't really find that much evidence for a major red state, blue state difference, or for any effect whatsoever from lockdowns, even if you adjust for how much people thought the lockdown was necessary. So, I mean, just starting out here, I actually printed out a, what's called a raw data output sheet, and I'm looking at it. I mean, in terms of cases, and you're talking almost halfway through August here, so these are fairly contemporary numbers, the average number of cases in a blue state was 98,122. Uh, the average number of cases in a red state was almost, or, or yeah, 98,000. The average in a red state was almost identical. It was 97,798. Uh, so there wasn't much of a difference there at all. Then if you moved over to cases per million, uh, again, you saw that there, the average for blue states was a little lower, uh, 12,436. The average for red states was 13,000, uh, basically 700. So the, the state itself, at least in terms of caseload, the, the governance didn't really seem to matter there. But there were two things that were pretty notable right off the bat. Um, first of all, there were a lot more deaths in blue states than in red states. And this is something that mm. needs to be discussed pretty frankly. So, I mean, a lot of people have been critical, sometimes appropriately, of the red state governors for things like opening the beaches. But there also were things that the blue state governors did that the red state governors generally didn't, like sending seniors who were COVID positive back into nursing homes for what were often described as civil rights reasons or allowing uh -huh. an even larger number of marches and demonstrations that had an effect. So like the average number of deaths per million in a blue state was uh, 495. Average in a red state was 305. That's per million. So the states were almost identical when it came to cases. There were more deaths in the blue states. And the biggest reason for that, the biggest reason for that is probably more exposure of seniors in some of the blue states early on. Uh, specifically, if you're talking about nursing homes, when you go to, for example, Cuomo's New York. Um, and let's see if that's true for deaths, uh, just straight deaths as well. Yeah, if you're looking at deaths, um, there's a pretty big blue, uh, blue state gap as versus the red states. So the average number of deaths in a blue state was 3,918 as versus uh, 2,165. And again, you get an even bigger gap when you go to deaths per million. The other thing was that the lockdowns didn't see, and this changes a little bit during regression, where instead of being a big negative in favor of the non-lockdown states, it becomes neutral. But states that locked down certainly didn't see fewer cases or deaths than states that didn't. And the states that didn't, by the way, weren't throwing you know, indoor raves. 
they were all encouraging pretty social distancing. They just didn't lock down. So you have to do something. But in terms of those states that did lock down, I mean, you're talking about an average of 114,000 cases. Uh, the states that never locked down, you're talking about an average of 37,000 cases. Um, so I, the state. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Continue. No, yeah. So, I mean, the states oh. that uh, locked down, you're talking about an average of 3,600 deaths. The states that never locked down, you're talking about an average of 560 deaths. Now, again, you want to be honest about this. So I, I next did a per million analysis. And again, you find some interesting things here. And this is probably just the last patch of raw numbers. But I mean, the average for lockdown states in terms of cases per million was 12,990. And the average for non-lockdown states in terms of cases per million was 12,920. So, I mean, you're there, you don't see much of a difference at all. Again, that's, it's not favoring the lockdown states. But when you move to deaths per million, you start seeing the same gap between the, that you saw between the red states and the blue states. So in the states that locked down, you're seeing uh, 435 deaths per million. And in the states that never locked down, you're seeing 182 deaths per million. Uh, I don't think that means that there are no place, New York at the peak, should have locked down. But you definitely don't find much evidence that lockdowns saved a great number of lives. I, to say this just is a specific scientific conclusion, you don't find any evidence at all that there were fewer deaths in states that locked down. On average, there were more deaths. Then I ran a series of regression models which broke down some additional variables like date of onset, i.e. what day did the epidemic start, you know, population, density. And then things kind of neutralized, like the lockdown states are no longer doing dramatically worse than the non-lockdown states. So obviously the, the clear point here is that you would lock down because perhaps you got hit early, you have big cities. But even once you adjust for all of that, you don't see much of a difference. I mean, in the non-lockdown states, you had some pretty sizable states. I mean, you had Oklahoma, including downtown Oklahoma City, didn't lock down. Not many people, but in terms of land area, you had South Dakota, you had Arkansas, South Carolina. So those states essentially just did what entire countries like Sweden and Japan did, um, suggested if not required masking, you know, they canceled large events, but they didn't lock down and we didn't see, you know, if you will, bodies in the street. So that's basically the conclusion. I mean, I don't think that certainly in terms of caseload, you see that much of a red state, blue state difference. Uh, with the variables in place, you don't see much of a lockdown, non-lockdown difference. You do, at least before the regression, see that there were more deaths in the blue states and more deaths in the uh, lockdown states. And that really, to me, indicates the importance of other stuff that's hard to look at, like how were seniors protected. So last line here, I mean, there was a report from kind of the center-right think tank, Free Op, that really noted that one of the biggest predictors of death, and then as we keep moving on, because I still owe you a bankruptcy model and so on, Tom, I'm going to look at this as well. But one of the biggest predictors of death is, I mean, the number of people that were killed, frankly, in nursing homes. I mean, whether you sent seniors back to nursing homes that were COVID positive, that sort of thing, or whether you allowed outside visits from young people who might be involved in some of the activism on either side of the aisle, or just young people in general who are out working, um, those two things really had an effect on how many people lived and how many people died. So just lockdown behavior itself didn't seem to make all that much of a difference. That's, that's one of the big conclusions. Um, politically, there were more deaths in the um, 
blue states than the red states. But again, when you run the full regression models with everything in, or when you just look at case numbers, you don't necessarily see a huge blue state, red state difference. That wasn't what we call significant. So that's a, that's a long ramble there, but those are some of the things that were, uh, right. were found. Yeah, hold okay, on. Yeah, well, hold on. I thought, and, and right, Coco, we'll, we'll you'll have break. some questions. Yeah, on, after this break, Tom Donaldson, Coco Konski here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network with special guest Will Riley. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson, Coco Koski here. Uh, on the Donaldson Files with Will Riley, where we're talking about his most recent study. And... Uh, Coco, you got. I'm gonna go ahead. And, you got a couple of questions to go ahead and follow up. Yeah. Um, okay. So obviously, I live in a blue state, um, and I'm actually really happy that I do, uh, because I, I I actually I had COVID back in February, okay. January, February, and I didn't know what it was until I actually got you know the testing done. I I did the um the blood the blood test uh, that they had to see if okay. you had the right antibodies or whatever. Um, and I gotta tell you, it was like, I, I, I didn't feel, I mean, I felt like I had the flu, but I knew it wasn't the flu. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was to the point where sometimes I would, I felt like I was kind of hallucinating and the fact that I would go out while I had this makes me just kind of shake my head. Like, why did I do that? But, um, we're I, I like, for example, Arizona, um, a good friend of mine um, was shooting a film in Puerto Rico and he, that's when all the lockdowns started happening and he basically had to fly back to Arizona and he's been stuck in Arizona for about eight months now, which to me is crazy (laughs) because he's still paying for his apartment here in LA. So for eight months, he's just, he's in Arizona. He, there's no way he's going to, he can come back right now. And it's funny because, you know, in Arizona, it's it's kind of, it's not, I don't really, I mean, it's a red state, I guess, but it's slowly, I guess, turning into kind of like a purple state that they would call uh-huh. it. And I I just see so many of his friends who are also my friends and I, I want to slap them. Like I want, I want to slap them, you know, because you know, one of them, you know, uh, one of them, a good friend of mine works at a nursing home in, in Arizona and he had to do a shift. Um, and he actually came down with COVID. Okay. So I, I've known I know about like seven people who've had it, and I know two people who have died from it. So for me, when I had it, I basically self isolated myself for like three months. You know, I I get to work from mm-hmm. home, which is great. So that didn't really affect my job, but you know, I I just feel like if you know someone who's had who has it, or you know, you think you have it, like just don't go out. Like I don't understand. Yep how hard it is to like not go out. If, if, if you had the flu, if you had the flu, would you be going out to the beach? No, you would not be going to the beach. You wouldn't be going anywhere. You know, you'd be staying at home trying to rest up. So it really blows my mind that I see people that are, some people in the medical field that I know are, are like have COVID or, ha, or, or like was diagnosed with it, have the symptoms, 
and they're going out partying. Like, I, I honestly don't understand that. And also, like, in California, you know, we have the whole lockdown of, you know, places are closed and, you know, gyms are closed. But there are some gyms that are still open in California. So just because, you know, a state um, says, like, well, we're going on lockdown, nothing's open, there's still going to be places that are open. They're just not going to advertise that they're open, you know. And I think that's a huge problem as well. It's like if if things are going to shut down, then you shut everything down. It's not like – oh, well, you know, I need the gym to be open. Like, no, you don't. You don't need the gym to be open. <laughs> you know, you definitely do not. And I, I've seen posts from people that I know that are literally in California who are going, working out, who are, who are eating out and, and, you know, who have elderly parents. And I, to me, it's like, I just wouldn't risk that. I, I just, I would not risk that. And so it really aggravates me when I, when I see people that I know who should know better, you know, they're smart, they're smart people. Um, and they're, they're just going out partying, you know, go, going to like a party with like 50 people. Like that makes me cringe, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. And so I just think like, you know, I mean, if you have it or you think you have symptoms of it, you know, you just don't go out. Like I, 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 I don't know. I get, I get very frustrated. I get very frustrated because COVID, like people think like some people, everyone's different with COVID, I think, because for me, my symptoms were not as like severe as others. Like I never ended up in the hospital, but you know, I did have a fever that was ongoing for about a week and that sucked. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. That's just, just how I feel about it. Like if, if you're, if you know, if you don't go to the gym, you know, you, I mean, if you want to go out for food, like, I mean, I, I haven't eaten at a restaurant since I want to say February, which is really sad, but I think that just to give, uh, to give kind of the professional opinion here after reading all the data, I mean, there, there are a couple different things. First of all, if you took an antibody test, you can do whatever you want. I mean, without, without being glib, because you're at no risk, not only to yourself, but more importantly to anyone else. So I think a lot of young people that I've talked to, because I do some work with athletes at my school and so I don't kind of get that. I'm sure you do. But I mean, like if you've already had the disease, you're good. Like your chance of reinfection is like, it, it does exist, but it's like a third of 1% or something it like does. that from the CDC. Absolutely. So that, that's point one. I mean, so if, if you're in, and by the way, like I've read what are called the serology studies about this. So we've stopped just testing people with, you know, the long hook thing in the nose to see if you have COVID at a given point, because we figured out that doesn't make a lot of sense. You can get right. it the next day. What we're doing right. now is mostly what's called serological antibody testing. So you give people a test. I've taken one. It's blood test, moderately uh-huh. painful, nothing real. You fill up a vial of blood to test you. And they right. tell you if you've had the antibodies, meaning you've had the disease. And I will tell you in Kentucky, out of a group of like even young professionals and seamsters was kind of the mix in Louisville. But I mean, something like 20% of people, as I recall, tested positive for the antibodies. Um, Miami did a similar test. They found months ago that at least 6% of people, 20% of young people had already had the disease. Uh, They've done this in Denmark. They've done this in Germany where they found, I think 15% of people had already had the disease. The, uh, the, what's called the IFR, the kill rate is about 0.3%. So what's coming out of all this is that we find that COVID probably, like you said, arrived earlier than we thought. And it infected a lot of healthy young people in kind of that coming out of winter cuffing season, essentially party scene, social scene. 
And most of those people did not die. Uh, most of them simply had a painful flu and got better. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the first point would be. In their life, but if they have people in their life that, like, are susceptible, like, to, like, they have elderly parents and they, they go over there, those people get sick, you know, I mean, that, that's the main well, reason I why I don't go out. It's not because of me. It's because of the people around me that I know are. Um, uh, but if you have the antibody test. to asthma. Yeah. Yeah, but if you have the antibody test, not, not ever to tell you what to do with your own life, but like you, it's very, very low right. risk. Like you'll have to decide what to do with that one in 300 risk, but you probably can't get the disease again. So if you don't, you wouldn't have COVID if you're around an elderly senior. I will say that this is like anything else. This is like STDs, um, how you feel about substances in the body. I mean, really anything. Everyone has to know mm-hmm. their own level of risk. But I mean, right. I will say. So your your second your second point there is is good, but I mean like so at the first level risk really varies for this with age, and that's something that I feel the media, whether you're talking about right leaning Fox or left leaning MSNBC, won't say because of the mm-hmm. appeal of panic. But if you go to the CDC website, I encourage everyone listening just to Google COVID deaths by sex age, um, and what you'll find is that the average victim is 82, and the at, at each level of age, the risk of a COVID death goes up something like an order of magnitude 10 times. So you've got something like 50,000 deaths over 85, and there are very few people over 85. We're talking about the low millions. Then you've got, what, 30,000, 40,000 between, say, 75 and 85, and then a smaller number between 65 and 75. By the time you get down to under 35 and you add the adjuster, no pre-existing conditions, if those medical records are available, you're talking about something like a hundred people. So, I mean, when you and I say like a lot of our friends had a painful flu or they should have skipped that last party, that's absolutely true. But that's not really yeah. where we've been seeing concentrated deaths. Like half of the deaths were just in nursing homes. They weren't with healthy older seniors that are at home playing cards with you. So, I mean, well, right. I mean, it's people who are prone to getting sick. And my, my problem is, is like, you know, I, I have, I have a stepkid and her mother is like, to- she's like, she's like me, you know, she has asthma. She, I have chronic bronchitis. So like, I can't be around people. And especially I will not be around people who refuse to wear a mask. You know, like I, I just, I just won't like, even if it's for the safety of my own mind, if it's for my own psych or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just know I won't, I won't do that. I just won't, you know, because I, I mean, if, if I, a guy would feel so horrible if, you know, if, if, like I say, if I caught this again, and by the way, like my symptoms haven't gone away. I still have some recurring symptoms um, from COVID, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll get a fever of 104. It's just like out of nowhere. Okay. Like I, I will be isolating completely, which is what I do. Like I don't even go to the grocery store. I literally in the cart. So, you know, I, I'm I, very, I'm very like, panicked about that and all of a sudden like I'll get a fever like two days from now and it'll be like 104 and I'll stay there for two days and then I'll be fine it's it's honestly it's the weirdest thing and none of my doctors can tell me like you know what it is although I'm I'm more on the social yeah no although I'm more on the social science side I mean I might speculate that you got the flu after COVID I mean without without being glib about this like my understanding of how diseases work and this is most diseases, I mean, from the common cold, if you're looking at T-cell immunity, at least the more serious strains, um, you know, on to virtu- basically if you get a disease and if you process through that disease to the point where you have still active antibodies for the disease, 
it's very unlikely you're going to get that disease again. Although of course you can get other diseases. So, I mean, I, I really don't know what caused that. Obviously you said you talked to a doctor. That's the way to go with that. But if you yeah, had COVID-19 yeah. and you were strong enough to beat that and now you're, you can, you, you're at very low risk of getting reinfected. You actually are one of the lucky people that could probably do more things than most people. But I mean, I think yeah. that this, it's, it's actually an interesting question because I actually agree with you. Like I'm, you know, kind of a broy guy, but I have no objection to wearing a yeah. mask. I think that the exactly. idea of I'm going to show, you know, I'm a bad boy by resisting this thing that's probably exactly. useless, but it could make, they could make old ladies yeah. feel comfortable. Like I don't really, that's silly. But exactly. I mean, I, I think the deeper, the deeper questions aren't really like what we're talking about. Which is like, should you be sensible? Like, first of all, if I had the flu, I wouldn't go to a large party. So if, well, yeah, if you're I mean, saying, if, yeah, no, no. But if, if you're saying like, while I think a good way to describe what you said would be like, while you are sick, or if you think you still might be sick, you shouldn't go to right. large events, music venues or something. Yeah. I think everyone would agree with that. But th- I, there are questions about a lot of this that go well beyond that. Like, and I, I, th- I think what this study does show is that however much we might want to encourage anything from sensible behavior to even mild public shaming, the massive lockdowns didn't work because obviously in practice, first of all, in practice, there is an exception to the massive lockdowns for large groups on either the right or left that were willing to fight the police. I mean, like no one's going to tell you to go home. So it's an election year. We've seen constant political marching and rallying every day. I mean, so that's, that goes from the lockdown protests to the Black Lives Matter marches to the quote-unquote Antifa scuffling with the cops in Portland. That, that's one note. So, I mean, many of the young people who are totally locked down when it comes to something like a Tinder date are also out doing political activity much of the day. Yeah. There's also work, obviously. We have, what, half the population are essential employees. Big businesses uh-huh. that have the power to lobby, like Walmart, those are fully open. So, I mean, in practice, what we find is that people in lockdown states didn't necessarily spend much more time indoors than the people in non-lockdown states. They just had sort of basic civil rights, essentially, like the ability to go to church, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, women's group, that sort of thing. That's what was taken away. You could go to Kroger all you wanted. So, really, one thing. Yeah. 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 This is Tom Donson, Coco Konsky, uh here on the Donson Pond. Will Riley will be right back. Uh, Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Yes, well, welcome back to the Donson Ponds. It's Tom Donson and Coco Koski with uh, Professor Will Riley. And, and don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, 3 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the Bachelor News Network. And we are also on twice a day. So here's how you do that. You go to Batch D. Bachelornews.airtime.pro, 3 a.m. to and 10 a.m. will be on. And if you got any comments, questions, or just simply want to call in and say, Tom and Coco, you're you're the best. Keep it going. Call in 646-929-0130. Okay, I, I, here's a question I'm going to ask you, 
So a couple of quick questions here. Okay. Uh, is because one of the things you saw in this study, there was a very weak correlation between actual cases versus deaths yep. in you know states. And what you know, it seems to me that that's an important answer because we talk about you know caseload. Uh, you know, every day I mean, like California, Florida, Texas are case are states that have you know far more what I would say confirmed cases, but far less deaths than let's say New York, New Jersey, or uh, you know Massachusetts. And so, yes. I mean, and to me, and I and I guess my question would be is. Why we, I mean, these, I mean, to me is the death, the actual number of cases is a bad metric to be basing policy on when you should be looking at death, hospitalization, or the age of yep. the person getting infected. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think it's point, good redirect. I mean, so, yeah, one of the things that I find in the study, just starting with the raw numbers, is that across the blue states and the red states, and I can name specific states if you want, there is a very weak correlation between case numbers and death numbers. And we've certainly seen this in the case of the recent kind of red state big three, I mean, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, where after the governors decided to basically just open up, people were predicting these things, like the Atlantic ran a headline called Georgia's Experiment in Human Sacrifice. Um, another major newspaper ran the headline 12 New York's Possible, as I recall, and that just didn't happen. We saw a surge in cases, young people partying, so on. We've seen very few deaths. And that's what I see across the model overall. So like when I said, and looking at this with everything adjusted for and looking at cases per million, um, the red states did do a little worse than the blue states in case numbers. That, that is a fact. Um, that's 12,436 cases per million uh, blue state and then 13,697 cases per million red state. But then when you flip to deaths, and again, this is per million. This is already modified. There have already been adjustments made. You're finding a 495 deaths per million in the blue states and only 305 in the red states. And the short answer to this is that what your death rate is across your pool of cases depends on who's getting infected. So as I mentioned, I mean, just continuing with the sort of wonky numbers, the average COVID victim is 82. In some individual states, it's 83. Um, if you look up free op COVID deaths nursing homes, you'll see that state by state, 30 to 60% of all of the people that died came specifically out of that nursing home and even hospice sector. So when you look at a state like Georgia, and we can debate should they have opened the beaches, people do have grandmothers, but where you've got young athletes, construction workers, beachgoers getting sick, you're seeing very, very low what we call IFRs. Like, if you take the, the death rate among the confirmed cases and you multiply that by the fact that there are probably five to ten times as many unconfirmed cases, you're looking at something like a 0.1% risk of death. Now, it would be dishonest to present that as the actual risk of death from COVID, but that is the risk of death from COVID among a young, healthy pool. So that's what we've seen recently. We've seen kind of summertime people in Arizona, Georgia, Florida. Let's not forget Blue State, California – getting infected and mostly surviving. And again, if you actually go to that CDC website, the, the figures here are astonishing. I mean, for a long time, the number of people under 16, 
So you're talking about, you know, varsity athletes, high school age teenagers that had died of COVID-19 was around 40. That number may sense have increased. But I mean, the number, when you get into the hundreds of thousands, you're talking about very old people with serious comorbidities. And we tragically, unfortunately, lose 60,000 of those countrymen during a bad flu season. So that, that is the difference that we've seen. The cases don't necessarily matter. You're, you don't want anyone to get it. But I mean, if you look at Young people that get COVID-19 during an athletic practice is what happened in North Carolina, as I recall. Very, very few of these people, whatever the media might sort of present as reality, are going to die of COVID-19. Those guys are going to be back out of the hospital on the field in a week. Um, so that is, that is what we did see. And I think some of this just comes from learning how to manage the disease. I'm not even going to get extraordinarily partisan about this. But when you talk about the first states to get hit hard, they were the first East Coast states with major airports. I mean, and that's New York, New Jersey. You could probably throw Boston, Mass, and the rest of the state in there. And, I mean, when you see things like we don't want these patients to feel isolated, we're going to take people that have gotten through the first bout of COVID and return them to their nursing home, that killed a lot of people. And that is responsible for a very disproportionate number of the deaths falling in the early blue states. I mean, New York has more than 30,000 COVID deaths. Um, Andrew Cuomo is apparently writing a book about successfully battling COVID, and I'm not really sure why. I mean, that, of course, he didn't have the same chance to learn as other people, but they got hit hard. Uh, New Jersey's number two, I believe 15,784 COVID deaths. So that was an older population, um, and now we're seeing a younger population getting hit, and there are dramatic differences. So just saying there are a bunch of COVID cases is meaningless. Like where? Well, let me ask you a question, because we looked at people of color. And we're seeing similar, you know, in, in a way, they're pretty much matching the general population. Uh, you know, the caseloads are similar, similar in red states, blue states, but they appear to be less deaths in red states versus blue states, lockdown versus non-lockdown. So, it, it, what, so I guess my question I'm going to throw back to you, you know, is would you say that people of color are essentially following the same pattern as the general population as far as that goes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a, a half the paper is devoted to people of color, which are now, I mean, it's 40% of the U.S. population. I included Hispanics as people of color. And, I mean, so, again, just looking at these numbers here, the average for the blue states, 52,774 cases among just POC. And notice, by the way, if you go state by state, roughly half the cases fall among POC. Um, that is a bit disproportionate. It also indicates how the country's population is changing. So, I mean, if you're talking about, what, 100,000 cases, 52,000 among POC. Uh, anyway, average for red states, red states did a little worse among POC in terms of cases, which isn't necessarily surprising. I mean, there were lower average POC incomes in the red states and so on. I mean, if you think about Mississippi, uh, Arizona for Hispanic Americans, and Alaska. But um, so the red states, uh, 59,190 cases on average for POC. But again, the red states did, I would say, a better job with seniors, and they've had a younger pool infected recently. So you saw the opposite with deaths. Um, the average number of POC that died in a blue state was 2,163 as versus 999 in the average red state. So, yeah, you saw almost exactly the same pattern. Another interesting thing you saw is that the media, which does lean left, has chosen to focus on POC case numbers. So they very consistently said, you know, half or more of those getting infected are people of color. That's true. 
But in this paper, we point out two obvious things that need to go along with that. If you're throwing Hispanics into the mix, 41% of people are people of color. I personally think that's a good thing. Boy, you think it's good, bad, or neutral? I mean, that's something – there's a big difference between 41, you know, to 53% of the cases and, you know, 12% that's African-American, meaning 53% of the cases, which I think is how that's sometimes presented. But another point is that, again, people of color made up a substantially smaller percentage of the deaths from COVID-19. Um, we tend to be a younger population. And actually, you could talk about other things like urban areas with more access to hospitals and so on. But I, I bet it boils down just to that one. We're a younger population. But, I mean, so out of 100,000 cases in a typical state, 52,774 were POC. But then if you flip that to the average number of deaths in a blue state, uh, still about half were POC. But, I mean, red states, you have the average number of deaths 2,165, less than 1,000 POC. I mean, there's still some overrepresentation, but state by state, you see uh, POC are a bit less likely to die, still seem to be uh, somewhat overrepresented there. But the overall POC death and case numbers match those for everybody, basically. Like, you, you see more cases in the red states, but you see substantially fewer deaths. And the question now becomes why. I think it's age. Yeah, cool. a quick question to as a follow-up, is bankruptcy. You know, again, we, I know you were looking at that data, and I've yet to see. You know, you, you know, I know you're still working on that data. You know, what, what have you seen so far? Well, we can run that in real time here and see. Um, the biggest impact on bankruptcies was, in fact, population. But let's see with this new model whether red state, blue state has any effect. So I'm actually exciting lifetime stuff going on here, pulling up a math program. All right, open, Donaldson COVID, and red bankruptcy. Okay. So bankruptcy, population, red, blue. All right, testing. All right. And let's see what we get here. All right, so the, the thing that has the most effect on bankruptcies actually is population. Um, whether the state is a red state versus a blue state, you do see more bankruptcies on average in a blue state, but it's by about six. Um, the only other thing that comes close to being a predictor of bankruptcy is the date at which COVID kicked in. So regardless of whether or not the state locked down or not, um, the date at which the epidemic started obviously affects the number of bankruptcies. Okay. And I just took the date of onset out of there and it's, it's still the same thing. Population has a big effect. Uh, yeah. yeah. Again, there's, there's very little effect of um, political background or of lockdown on bankruptcies. There's a slight um, negative effect of lockdown and that there are more bankruptcies in lockdown states, but that's not what we would describe as significant. Hmm. Okay. So that, that, had, that uh, had less impact than I thought it would. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I tell you what, I appreciate uh, you coming on the air for that, but I tell you what, since uh, I'm going to ask the both of you a real quick question. Uh, go back to Bitcoin. Okay. And that is, do you guys, neither one of you see this eventually becoming an equal currency to the dollar to the and to other major government fiat currency? Or is it a case mm-hmm. of... Uh, so, because I know years and years ago, F.A. Hyatt wrote about this, where he talked about the idea that a separate currency independent of government control that's not gold is a distinct possibility. So what's both of your thoughts on that? And I'll start with you, Kozo. You just said yes. Uh, yes to what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you see this as a definite possible uh, yeah. Possible. Yeah. I, I, replacement I'll, I'll you, of currency. You, yeah, I do actually. I mean, look, we're in a techie world. Everything's tech now. Um, you know, we're talking about inflation. You know, it's funny because I, 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 I started watching this really quick. I started watching this really great series about the mob, and um, you know, back in the '30s, I wanted to know what like like a thousand dollars was back, or it was like a hundred and something dollars back then. Um, $11 back then was like 112 or something. I always found that really fascinating about how, like, you know, obviously people were able to support themselves because, you know, the dollar was actually pretty decent. And so, um, yeah, I absolutely believe currency is, is the way. I mean, if you go to certain stores, they'll actually have a Bitcoin machine. Um, I know the smoke shop that I go to, which is hilarious, that it has it actually has a Bitcoin machine if you want to purchase something. So they don't have an ATM. They have a Bitcoin machine. Um, All right. So we're going to keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, how about you, uh, Dr. Riley, uh, uh, Professor Riley? What's your thoughts? I mean, um, I think money is only real because people believe in it. I mean, we're not paying for things with gold or you know beautiful purebred sheep anymore. So if people Man, think Bitcoin, if if people think Bitcoin has value, then to some extent it does. So money in the modern fiat currency environment is valuable because people believe that it is valuable. So if, if every store in a city as big as L.A. or Chicago where I live in central Louisville is taking BTC, then yes, BTC is real money. The only problem with Bitcoin that I could see is that there's no government to make people believe it's real money. If you don't take U.S. dollars, the government can theoretically shut down your business. They can theoretically shoot you if you refuse to pay your debts in a civil or criminal case initiates and so on. So with BTC, I mean, if there's a scandal involving the initial folk who set up the company or if it becomes too associated with the dark world drug scene or something like that and businesses refuse to accept it again, then the value drops. So the dollar is worth a dollar. We have 3% inflation annually. That's because it's backed by the government swords and guns, um, whether you think that's good or bad. With Bitcoin, if people decide Bitcoin is worthless, then Bitcoin is worthless. Um, but I don't think people are going to decide that, in all honesty. Yeah, yeah here's the yeah. Uh, I'm going to sum up real quick because I'm running out of time. But you know, like I say, somewhere along the line, of, you know, I mean, currency is only good if the if people have, you say, faith in it or they faith in the government to keep it state, you know, to keep it stable. And that's always been a key question in inflationary times. And certainly when at this particular point in time, you are seeing the feds pumping out the dollars. And the question is, does this eventually lead to a inflationary period? 
But that's something worth Yeah, we ought to have a discussion on this. Are you up yeah. for that? Uh, yeah, that'd be yeah. more How about you, Dr. Ryland? Would you be up for that? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd give crypto picks, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very I, I interested in the idea of money. Like, yeah. why do yes. – there, there's a whole bunch of stuff from and money it, to virginity that doesn't really exist that people believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said something – Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going well, to say – I'm going to have to say goodnight. This is Tom Donaldson with Will Riley and Coco Konski here on the Donaldson Files on the Bastion Radio Network. Good night. I always love talking to you guys. Have a good night. Trumpet, you know it's the Dr. Larry Show, and I'm Dr. Larry Fidoa, uh, your host for the evening. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the uh, t- uh, 2020 political uh, Republican political convention. So the 2020 political conventions have drawn to a close with a dramatic and late night end. Uh, to the Republican convention, and what a show each party presented. Last week, we discovered the Democrat. We discussed the, the, the Democrats' effort based on two criteria: technical and content. So we'll do the same thing for Republicans. The Republican National Committee, the RNC, broke new ground technically with this production. The bulk of the time for the first three and a half sessions was a series of testimonies by a vast variety of people, mostly non-politicians who told their personal stories. All were interesting, many were gripping, like the widow of the uh, retired police chief in St. Louis who was killed by the rioters, or the young young congressional candidate who rose from his wheelchair to salute the flag, or the young ex-planned Planned Parenthood staffer, who was appalled by what she saw in a live abortion, and the list goes on. From a technical point of view, the variety of settings for each presentation, the musical interludes, and most of all, the pacing of the program, was exceptional. The only way so many speeches could have been packed into the time allowed depended on strict discipline of timing variety of material, insertions of video clips to dramatize the speaker's prose, and of the settings, all of which were exceptional. This discipline included even time limits on the usually long-winded politicians, which I thought was one of the more impressive features of the program. The program ended with a brief but spectacular uh, fireworks display and a closing few songs, featuring tenor Christopher Macchio, although the lateness of the hour may have made this segment a little harder to appreciate. 
In all, the technical framework of the convention set a new standard for this type of program, using many of the techniques of documentaries for live pre- but for live presentations. In fact, it is hard to imagine anything but state-of-the-art production for the man who topped TV ratings for all those years. Like last week's content, the content of either party tends to be controversial, appreciated by the advocates, scorned by the opposition. So it is with this convention. As a sympathizer with the Republicans, my views are colored by my own preferences. That having been said, I was very impressed by the messages of this convention. Among the most impressive features were the uh, number and variety of presenters. Most were ordinary Americans whose stories varied in content, tone, accent, and perspective. All, of course, came to the same conclusion. They were voting Republican. The interesting part was the uh, individual starting points, and especially interesting were the black endorsements, some from Democrats. Also impressive were the young men and women who are the future of the party, led by Nikki Haley, Rand Paul, and Tim Scott, among several others. The last half of the last evening was devoted to Donald J. Trump, sitting 45th President of the United States of America. The earlier testimonials were a mixture of endorsements of the President, criticisms of the Biden-Harris ticket, and explanations of the generic differences for either the Republican Party or specific issues, especially reasons for black support for Trump over Biden. This last segment was devoted to endorsements by Trump, of Trump, by a variety of people, ranging from ordinary Americans to politicians. And finally, the president himself gave his acceptance speech for the Republican nomination for the presidency. The speech was an indictment of the Democrats' prospective policies. Mr. Biden himself, based on his half-century record of public service, recap of Mr. Trump's own record of the past three and a half, three and a half years, and his plans for the future. His agenda is mostly well known, although he supplied a surprising detail of some of the planned initiatives. His tone was somewhat subdued compared to other speeches, but he covered a wide range of subjects, and, as expected, his speech was very long. While we are on the subject of Mr. Trump, here are some observations I would like to share. I recently had occasion to watch some of his 2015-16 to 16 debates. There is no question that he was a brutal, bullying candidate. Never have I seen such behavior before, in a formal setting like a presidential debate. It was prompted, I believe, by his disdain for all politicians, especially those in national office, although he also criticized Dr. Ben Carson as being, quote, low energy. Looking back, I think it was just this behavior which gained him a bad reputation among many otherwise open-minded people. I believe he is still paying for that period, even though it did not stop him from winning both the nomination and the election. I also believe that Donald J. Trump has experienced some significant changes since he became president. 
One of the most uh, significant has been his attitude toward politicians. He quickly realized he needed their support in order to get done some of his most important priorities. He has succeeded in converting some of his most offended victims, as well as virtually all the Republicans in Congress, from enemies into fervent advocates, excepting, uh, unfortunately, the uh, Bushes. Prime examples are Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. He even persuaded Dr. Carson to join his cabinet. Since taking office, he has turned into a great advocate of the Republican Party, campaigning religiously for Republican candidates throughout the country. He has accepted the mantle of the head of the party and pursued it with his characteristic vigor. Another uh, area of his life has also seen change, in my opinion. That is his private life, particularly his personal conduct and his religious practice. Like many other presidents, though not all, he has, quote, grown into the job. His life is now lived in a glass house. Everything he says or does is noted and publicized. He cannot for, afford to be seen in any questionable behavior, and uh, he has become a straight arrow. He has also, I believe, become more aware that he depends on a force beyond his or anyone else's control. Never known to be particularly religious, he is now seen praying in church and in public, seen as a strong advocate of religious freedom, and generally deserving of the strong support he received from the evangelical community. Some would say he's uh, masquerading. I believe he is sincere. Sincere or not, uh, sincere or not it is hard to dot deny uh, his behavior. Now, Thomas, uh, Donald Trump has not miraculously become a gentle St. Francis by any means. He is still tough and fearless and sometimes crude but he has had his horizons expanded. The case for a Trump electoral victory was strengthened by the 2020 Republican Convention with its hope, it's a message of hope, prosperity, and equality. We will see how long it lasts. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Johnson presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bathroom News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge, and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening. Yeah, the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century, and nothing is off limits or taboo. Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Imagine a league built by the people for the people. A league dedicated to the economic development of your city. So the question becomes, how good are the 32 teams that play in the minor football league? Well, there's only one way to find out. You have to experience the MFL.
Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of uh, of the Bachelor News Radio Show with your host, L.A. Bachelor. This show discusses issues of race, politics, policing, injustice, inequality, religion, and sports that affect black, brown, and poor people negatively. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash labachelor and the rebroadcast every day at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro and if you're interested in having your own show or in advertising, email, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. So we're uh, going to have a uh, uh, panel discussion tonight uh, with two very uh, uh, I'm here. good friends of our our show. Uh, first, uh, Chris Kettner, who is a uh, recent, recent, uh, recently retired from a long uh, career in uh, in uh, in, in uh, radio, and uh, secondly, uh, uh, Bob Livingston, who is a, uh, a very uh, distinguished uh, ex-congressman and uh, and uh, lobbyist in uh, in Washington D.C. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Dr. Larry Show. Thank you. Can you hear me, Doc? Thank you, Larry. Yeah, I'm here too. Okay, great. Well, Congressman, uh, nice to, pleasure to get a chance to talk to you, Congressman. Same here, Chris. We're. Uh, uh, I guess I'll start with a uh, a little uh, egos thing here and say, uh, how did you guys uh, uh, react to my uh, my opener? And uh, let's start with uh, with Chris. I loved it as usual. I thought it was right to the point. I was waiting for you to talk about his transformation um, religiously or Christianity-wise. I was waiting for that. You touched base on that. Um, I thought it was a great, great um, intro. Well, Bob, uh, I hope you can. T- I hope you can uh, can get uh, get higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll echo it uh, without a doubt, uh, Larry. I thought it was a splendid opening statement. I think you captured the uh, uh, the sentiment of that uh, uh, that whole week uh, compared to the week before. First of all, it was a great production. It was extremely well organized, and I got to give credit to Chairman Ronna McDaniel, uh, the Republican National Committee Chairwoman, who who put that whole thing together. She's she was a gun. Uh, unlike the Democrats who, uh, the week before, uh, who, who just had a bunch of old people who came on uh, on Zoom and, and did a virtual uh, uh, speech and bored people to death. Now, this was a real production. And uh, interestingly enough, I think the average speaker for the Republican convention was a whole generation younger than the people that spoke for the Democrats. Yeah, you know, there was something else. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say there was something else that was so notably different 
One was, and look, it doesn't matter whether you're a partisan or not, in my opinion. I look at it neutrally when I'm watching for professional reasons. One was full of hate and negativity, and one made you feel almost Reagan-esque with the love America. That's a big deal. Well, I think the patriotism was extremely uh, important. Yeah, because you know we don't we don't hear about that very often anymore, and and uh, th- this was just you know uh, God bless America in in many languages and many uh, colors and many and uh, many different ways, which which I think is really really helpful because we all need a little bit of a boost in that direction, and from an extraordinary yeah. diverse uh, ethnic group as well. Uh, you pointed that in your split your. Your uh, intro. I, I would one, make one other point. You, you said that Trump, uh, the President Trump, came on the scene uh, in a, as a heated and and, and and argumentative candidate. I've forgotten your exact words. Uh, I would say that uh, because he was who he was, he was probably the only Republican on the scene that could have beaten Hillary Clinton. She did everything in her power to rig that election, including. Getting the Obama uh, security forces, the the, uh, uh, the FBI and so forth, to rig the uh, election against Trump both before and after he was president, and then he had to suffer the indignity of two or three years of investigations on a totally fabricated uh, investigation that was just worthless. But Donald Trump's energy, his perseverance, his ability to bounce back. Uh, is just astronomical. And when you compare uh, Donald Trump today, who's about uh, uh, three or four years younger than Joe Biden, uh, it it would seem that it's more like about a 10 or 15-year gap in their ages. And then you put in the fact that he accomplished so many things while going through all this. He's accomplished more things than three or four presidents that did eight-year terms. In three years, three and a half years, while he was under this kind of duress. I mean, he is totally, he was totally and is still an amazing individual, regardless of whether you like him as president or not. Totally true. One of the things is his energy. My God, the guy, he never sleeps and... uh, and he just seems to, he never gets sick. He just, he's, he's, he's almost a Superman. And he's 70, what, three years old? 73, wow. yeah. And but, you've got uh, to think he, about he, this. he has more energy than I, I had 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to think about this. Imagine if you wake up. You've got the media against you. You've got the tech industry against you. You've got the DNC against you. You've got the academia world against you. You've got the, um, your, some of your establishment Republicans against you. And there's like 17 different quadrants I could point out that are against it. This man wakes up every day hearing how his family's horrible, all the disgusting things they say, and he just keeps plodding on because he loves America. I mean, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah, in fact, he's having problems with his own family. I mean, he's got his, his sister and his, uh, his niece are writing books, and God. Uh, well, well, Jimmy Carter had that. I think just about every president has had that. Bill Clinton had that same kind of problem with, uh, I think, his 
his brother Hillary Clinton oh, yeah, had, yeah, had, had a right. problem with uh, with her brothers. So every family, you, you can't, no family walks in lockstep uh, with, uh, with with the figurehead. Uh, but in this case, uh, uh, those complaints by uh, uh, the Clinton family, excuse me, the uh, Trump family, are just kind of bouncing off his back. Nothing slows the guy down, to Chris's point. Uh, with <laughs> all the media and everybody that's piled up against him, the investigations, the impeachment uh, exercise, which was worthless, uh, all of these uh, various things that have been uh, aimed at him, and yet he still not only survives but gets more done than, as Chris said, uh, and most presidents get done in eight years, let alone four. Well, I was talking to a uh, truck driver the other day, and I asked him what he thought of Trump. And he said, first thing he said is, he's got, man, he's got brass, <laughs> blank, <laughs> yes. blank, blank, blankety blank. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he, he is fearless. I mean, and, and he takes terrible chances. Uh, I thought he took a terrible chance with this uh, shutting down of the of the whole uh, economy, for example. And and also, you know, remember he walked right into the uh, Saudi Arabia at one of his first uh, uh, overseas trip. My God, there you know a lot of most of the presidents, including his predecessor, were 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 kind of afraid. Whether would have been afraid of assassination. And he goes in there and he dances with him. <laughs> I mean, you got to give the guy. in Wisconsin uh, yesterday. You don't think that was in some of the Secret Service back of their mind yesterday in Wisconsin? Absolutely. He walked. He walked right into the line of fire there yesterday. Yeah, uh, he's he's fearless. He, he he, but he has a feeling for the American people. And and uh, to your point about the uh, uh, the truck driver. I think Joe Sixpack, the average American worker, knows that uh, Donald Trump's got their back. Uh, I, I noticed it four years ago when he was running. Uh, guys who are construction workers uh, told me unequivocally that they, they'd probably voted Democrat their whole life. They were voting for Donald Trump, and I think they still are. Well, people forget. They wonder how, how could a billionaire TV star uh, be, be able to talk in such a way that the working people would, uh, you know, would would recognize him as a as a uh, advocate. They they forget that he grew up around construction sites. You know, he was talking to the guys that that uh, pound the nails and walk the roofs and carry the steel. And he, he just, you know, he he spent a, his whole early life in that environment rather than on wall street or some other place. And, uh, I think yes, that really, yeah. you know, it gave him his style, which is not very, apparently a lot of suburban women don't like it very well, but I think that's where he got it. But here's the thing, two points, if I can make them. First of all, as an American, I'd rather have a man talk to me like that straight up and say what he's feeling and tell me the truth than a slick, polished talker like Obama who would lie on tape 40, 50 times lie to us, but he was really polished and, and people liked his charisma and all that. I'd rather have the guy that Yeah. Oops. Excuse me? We, we lost okay. you oh. there. I thought, I thought we got you cut off. 
I agree with you. The Obama said uh, you, uh, if you like your doctor, you can keep him. If you like your insurance company, you can keep him. And that disappeared about two months later. He talked about shovel-ready jobs. Later on said uh, uh, there were no uh, such thing as shovel-ready jobs, even after he spent a trillion dollars. Uh, not guy, one thin uh, dime is ever coming out of your paycheck. Not one thin dime. Remember that? Yeah. Then, and then finally, just what we're learning right now, uh, he turned his intelligence agencies against the incoming president of the United States. That borders on treason. I agree 100 percent. And the point I was going to make with the suburban women, look, the Democrats played right into their hand with these peaceful, quote unquote, protests that have turned into nothing but rioting and looting. And now these people are threatened to come to the suburbs. These women are waking up with a little bit of a different feel now. Do we want the man that can stop that? Or do we want them coming to a theater near us, our homes? And I think they're going to they're, they're going to be changing their attitudes a little bit. Well, they might kind of think about like the the mayor of uh, Portland, who found out that the rioters <laughs> were just great uh, until they came to his house and tried to burn it down. Correct. Yeah, or, or the suburban uh, couple that went out with in the lawn with their guns and tried and McCloskey's. Yeah, yeah, in St. Louis, and. Uh, now they're you know they're they're facing litigation. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We all good out here. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and uh, we're uh, I would uh, I would uh, advise the people that are listening uh, to us on the uh, radio or on the telephone that um, you know you can uh, you can uh, ask questions and uh, and talk and join the conversation if you wish. And uh, for those of you who are on the uh, on, t- on the uh, computer, uh, the, the telephone number is six four six nine two nine zero one three zero, and uh, you can listen or you can or you can also uh, participate. So tonight we're talking to uh, uh, Bob Livingston and Chris Kettner. Uh, we're uh, deep into the uh reactions to the uh Republican National Committee uh convention and uh I'll start off with the uh reminder that uh the uh, chairwoman of the uh, RNC is uh the uh, daughter-in-law of uh one of the uh most outstanding uh, rhinos uh our, our friend from Utah so I think she's his niece, isn't she? 
I thought she was, uh, well, I, I don't know. You would probably know better than I. Yeah, I don't think I don't think she's in the immediate family. I think she I think she's the daughter of uh one of his brothers. Oh. She can only hope. <laughs> well, she did a hell of a job. Um I I I think your uh your uh remember your uh, uh accolades to her uh, Bob were are, are very well deserved. I I thought that that was a terrific pr- production. Well, she's, she's. I have to say, I didn't know her at all when she took office, uh, and I had a little reservation when I found out her name was uh, Ronna Romney uh, McDaniel. But she has been nothing short of splendid from the time that she's taken that job, uh, to organizing the uh, RNC and working with the senatorial committees and the congressional committees to get people reelected, and then to put on that wonderful show after the Democrats have done just a. Uh, such of a dud of a job. And, I, I and look at the logistics. Look at the logistics, Bob. The, the logistic problem she's had when they moved it from one place to the next place, and then in the middle, yeah. of, then back over to the White House. I mean, that's incredible organization. You're right, and in, in, in such a short period of time, it was supposed to be in North Carolina, and it was going to go to Florida, and then do to the White House. Oh, and by <laughs> the way, Chris, uh, the White House. Uh, the Democrats tried to make a big deal about that. Had, that had never been done. I checked. In 1940, uh, President Roosevelt actually uh, did uh, deliver uh, his acceptance speech yeah. for the nomination uh, at the White House. Yeah, he he didn't he didn't even go to the convention. Right. Yeah. That. Um, and I think that under the circumstances, it was kind of hollow. I mean, they were really scratching the the, the uh, bottom of the barrel when they came up with that that objection. The only the only reason Obama did not do it at the White House is because it would have been too patriotic. That's the only reason, or he'd have done it too. Well, I've just been reminded that the uh, the uh, chat room is open for questions. Uh, so when you call and if they ask uh, who you are or what you want. It's because they want to put you uh, in. If you want to, they want to put you on the program. So don't don't panic. <laughs> don't hang up. Some people get scared. Um, so, um, well, Bob, um, what are you what are you up to these days? Well, I'm still running a small lobbying shop uh, about two or three blocks from the Capitol. But uh, in all this COVID environment. About half my people are uh, on campus uh, at the office, and uh, and the half are uh, working from home. Uh, and ironically, uh, we, we we do uh, work with the Congress, but I haven't actually been in any congressional office in about six months. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and they're only three blocks away, but we do everything by Zoom and by email. Well, there isn't anybody there anyway, right? <laughs> Well, actually, Nancy Pelosi kind of, uh, has closed the place down as much as possible, but we can still deal with their staff and, uh, and get stuff done. But you're right. They're not doing too much. We, but they passed uh, three COVID bills, uh, and uh, they can't, they're working on a fourth, which they may or may not ever pass. But uh, otherwise, they really haven't done much of anything. Well, you I know, guess, Bob, uh, I looked at that. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, if you want to really talk to her, I guess you have to go to San Francisco to her favorite salon. 
I went and looked. Remember the the Heroes Bill? Mm-hmm. The bill called the Heroes Bill that she the, the the COVID one that she proposed. The one in May, yeah. I nicknamed the it the Zeros Bill. It was the first one that she sent. Oh, it yeah. literally yeah. it literally had trillions of dollars that had nothing to do nothing to do with COVID. Whatsoever. I mean, trillions. I broke the entire bill down, all 2,012 pages. It was ridiculous. Well, Chris, get ready. If the Biden were to get elected and the, and the Democrats take the House and the Senate, uh, that's the oh, agenda a, for the next uh, two to four years. Well, the filibuster will be gone the first month. The filibuster, that'll be gone, and then they will just stomp the American people. And if we think Obama was bad, this will be on steroids. And they'll be packing the courts. Oh, my uh, gosh. I think uh, the possibility of two-party government uh, may be over. Yeah, that's frightening. Look, Who do you think is going to win? I think Trump's going to win. I read an article that was interesting the other night. Everybody, the people I talked to and the research I've done, it looks like Trump's going to win on election night. The fear is that a week to 10 days later when all the mail comes in, yeah. that he will then lose the election. <clears throat> and look, here's the whole reason they want that mail-in ballot, the truth of it. They can see, okay, we're losing in Pennsylvania by 2,000 votes. Okay, guys, get those boxes of mail Get them over here so we can make up that difference. Now, oh, we just won by 200. I mean, that's the whole purpose of it. Well, they've done it in California for the last two or three elections. Uh, and they, they, they use uh, ballot harvesting, which is uh, illegal in most uh, states. But it's a system where you mail in the ballots and, and uh, uh, designated people go around to all the old folks' homes and, and get the ballots filled out. Uh, either voluntarily or not, uh, by uh, 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 the people on the voter rolls uh, with, with their designated ballot artificer, and uh, God knows how it turns out. Well, no, you know how it turns out. The Democrat wins. Yes, absolutely. It's really a horrific situation. I would almost like to see, I hate to say this, but remember when they put their finger in the purple ink over in Iraq? The first yeah, time they finally yeah, got to vote, yeah. I'd almost like to see America do that one more time. And everybody go out and vote. Put your finger in ink and be proud that, hey, guess what? We voted the right way. That system works. Really, it's well, worked all these years. Well, those people, you know, remember when they used to go around uh, uh, showing off that the the fact that they, uh, they had this uh, – you know, they had this uh, new uh, purple mark on their on their hand or wrist or whatever it was. Yes, yes. But see, yeah. the ultimate goal, what scares me is the ultimate goal of these people is not the mail-in ballot. That's what people think it is. It's to vote by phone. That's what is eventually going to be the, the, the talking point. They're going to do it by cell phone, and they're going to use a thing called blockchain to convince people that it's okay and it's safe. Well, until we get there, uh, they continue, the Democrats continue to be against uh, 
uh, voter ID for people that walk into the precinct and cast their uh, cast their votes. Uh, the irony is, any person that wanted to go into that one arena where the Democrat convention was being held had to show an ID. <laughs> yeah, and Bob, I can't even get a library book. I can't even get a library book without a picture ID. Right. So uh, who's going to stop them? Well, I know Bob the American people stop them. I'm ready for the American people to have a massive turnout, and I do think that this it's possible. I think I think this whole violence uh, and the, the riots in these various uh, cities. Uh, and 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 just devastation of COVID. You, you said that sh- uh, Trump uh, shut the government down. Actually, he didn't. He, he shut the the Chinese out of the uh, uh, stopped them from shipping their people in, into the U.S. When uh, Joe Biden said that was ethnically uh, yeah. an ethnic infringement, Correct. and and Nancy Pelosi was going into Chinatown saying that Trump was. Uh, a, a, a terrible person uh, But the fact is he did that uh, But it was the governors uh, The crazy governors uh, The Democrat governors Particularly in the blue states That closed things down just to such an, so entirely And and uh, even worse Cuomo in New York uh, Forced a lot of sick people To go into nursing homes And, and, and cause the deaths Proportionally yeah. of vastly more people uh, Than uh, then died uh, throughout the rest of the country or the rest of the world. Yeah, that, I mean that is really serious. And the yet, first couple he, of he got months, away with it. Yeah. Well, he hasn't got away with it completely yet because there are lawsuits, a lot of lawsuits coming in to him now, and he's not releasing the figures from the nursing homes out of fear. But I mean, of course, that New York is so corrupt anyway that everything will work out for him in the end. Um, but their whole objective, in my eyes, I saw when it turned you know, when it first came out. You go, okay, maybe there's a really bad thing happening. But then all of a sudden, I could see the people that always say, if there's a cri- never let a good crisis go to waste. And all of a sudden, it turned political. And then it didn't matter whether their citizens were going out of business, starving to death. They didn't care because they saw it as a tool to take the economy away from the, the, the platform of Donald Trump. That's exactly right. And when the riots started in, uh, in Seattle, uh, that crazy mayor said, uh, well, it's okay because it's going to be the summer of love. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, we got a question. And now from... I don't know if I, I, I don't know if they can put it back in the in the, in the can now. The, the rioting and the looting. I don't know if they can put it in the can before the election. Go ahead, Doc. I'm sorry. Yeah, they, uh, we got a question from Suzette from uh, California. Suzette, uh, what's your question? Hello. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I was wondering what your thoughts were about how the American people are going to respond not only to Nancy Pelosi's um, episode with her stylist in San Francisco, but the fact that she was able to call an emergency session on Saturday, the Saturday previous, to uh, vote on a resolution to fund the post office uh, because she believed that they needed it in order to process mail-in ballots. So um, do you think that people will see through the fact that she's not working for them in the sense of, 
Trump had to sign an executive order in order for people to have money to eat. <laughs> but um, she can't seem to, to um, uh, compromise with the Republicans in order to get something done. That's, okay. that's a very good point. I, I agree with the, the whole tenor of your question, and the fact is that it depends on where you live. Uh, in San Francisco, they love her, and they'll keep electing her. Uh, she's a true San Francisco Democrat, but if you bring her down south, uh, they'll, they'll they'll ride her out on a rail. <laughs> so I, I think that's and a remember your governor beholder. <laughs> and your her, your governor out there is her nephew. Yeah, I, yeah, runs in the family, and the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree as far as their deviality, deviousness. <laughs> Well, Suzette, what what do you think? Uh, what are you hearing about from your neighbors? Well, quite honestly, seeing Trump signs, seeing flags, um, and it's it's very interesting um, because before um, in 2016, it was very hush hush, very quiet. Nobody talked about it. Nobody talked politics. If you brought it up, it was let's not talk about it. People always get in arguments about it. But um, now it's not so much. We're seeing groups of people standing on the corners of, um, you know, big intersections, waving their Trump flags, American flags, and there are people passing by honking. My husband and I had passed by one of those um, not too long ago, and we ended up pulling over, parking, and joining the group. <laughs> so, well, well, hold that thought. Um uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Taste and health. You want both in one cranberry juice? You want Northland. Northland has a kick to it. I like that. It says 100% juice on their label. That tells me it's healthy. Cranberry raspberry, cranberry grape. I love all their flavors. Northland, a great taste and the health benefits of cranberry. Only Northland has 27% cranberry in all nine of its 100% juice cranberry blends. I choose Northland because it fits my healthy lifestyle. Northland, 100% juice, 100% refreshing. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, we're talking to Suzette from uh, California, who's uh, called in and... uh, so we were. I was just wondering if you're you're saying that that basically your uh, your uh, neighbors don't want that they do or they don't want to talk of politics they do anymore. Now. I'm sorry, they do now, but they didn't in 2016. But now they're they're not afraid to put their flags in the front yards and their signs in the front yards supporting Trump. And supporting America. Trump, really? Support, yeah, and America because you see the the flags. Um, as a matter of fact, down my block, um, there would be like every other, every house, every fourth house would be some type of other flag, but the rest are American flags. So you have four, four American flags, something else flag, four American flags, something else flag. I live in the suburbs, and so oh it's comforting. I have one more question for you, though, if I may, Dr. Larry. Sure. Um, what do you think about the RNC 
attitude about not putting money into candidates in California. And the reason being, well, California is blue. There's no point in investing any money in any of those candidates because they'll never win anyway since it's a pretty much blue state. I think that attitude is a bad attitude because then it will never change if they don't invest money in candidates. At some point, do you think that they ever will or that attitude will change, or do you think that the RNCs just people need to change before anything else will change? Well, who'd like to take that one? Well, I'll take it for a second real quickly and then turn it over to Bob. The bottom line, unfortunately, is that there's so many states that are, I guess you would call them challenge, that that are key states that they have to, battleground states, if you will, and the number is getting smaller and smaller as far as the Republicans are concerned, that they've got to put a tremendous amount of resources in these battleground states, and sometimes they just kind of concede a state. I think eventually, cyclically, it will happen, but there's a lot of states that are battleground states that we're losing, like Virginia. Virginia is basically a blue state now. I've lived there my entire life, and it was red, and but now it's turned blue. Arizona is another one we have to worry about. There's several, North Carolina, lots of them. Bob, what about you? Well, Chris, you've said it uh, absolutely correctly. I, I, uh, it's a matter of resources and where you're going to apply the resources and what your best chance of winning is. Uh, we have districts in California that we can win, and then – uh, and we're, we're applying those. And I think actually we're going to pick up seats uh, in California. This uh, lady, Young Kim, and, and, and a couple of others are, are probably coming in. Uh, but uh, with, with Virginia definitely turning uh, much more liberal than it used to be uh, because of the Washington, D.C. Uh, dark state environment uh, controlling much of the vote in Virginia, and various other states are uh, getting squeezed. The irony is that uh, people come from liberal states, uh, they get sick of the, the government that they get there, and so they come to more conservative states and import the same stupid liberal uh, voting tactics. Uh, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah. Amazing, amazing point, Bob. It's, it drives me crazy that they do that. They're like locusts. You know, they, they take a state, they vote in this government, they vote in these ridiculous policies and regulations and everything else, so it takes that state down, and then they get frustrated because they can't afford to live there anymore, and they don't like all the laws and regulations they put into place, so they don't want to apply to them, so they move on to another state, and then they take over that state and do the same thing, and then they trash that state and move on to the next, like locust. <laughs> it's so sad. Well. Well, you know what I saw did. yesterday, what I've been seeing recently, which is a really a sad, sad thing. I have a lot of attorneys that are my friends, and believe it or not, most of them I talk to, they don't even know that their building's burning and rioting and looting. They don't even know that people are getting shot. I mean, I talk to these people. I ask them, what are they watching and they CNN. Say, well, CNN, MSNBC. I said, well, maybe you might want to turn another station on and see what's – they don't even know. The media has so saturated it that it's not even covered. And, and so NPR. The people, yes, yeah, the national public radio that we're paying as taxpayers for 
supposed to be fair and balanced, if you will, and instead it's nothing but liberal commentary. And it's really sickening that the public is not getting the, a fair shake with the media. It's oh, well, on what media is what it is. I beg to differ. You know, the, all the Republicans and conservatives are just like conspiracy theories. None of that stuff is happening. Ted Wheeler didn't flee from his condom, condominium and leave the other tenants there remaining to, you know, <laughs> brunt what should have been coming at him. I'm being sarcastic. But, uh, yeah, he was a coward and he abandoned his city. He should, and for that, he should be considered abandoning his position. And they need a new mayor. <laughs> Well, I think certainly stuff like the riots uh, and the conditions in Portland and Seattle and Chicago and so forth have to get some people thinking that they deserve a change, and they've got to start voting some of these morons out of office. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, Thank you, gentlemen, for taking my call. I don't want to take all your time up, but I appreciate you answering my questions. Good thank call. You. Well, thank you for your uh, contribution, and um you feel free to call in next week. <laughs> well, do. Thank you, Dr. Larry. Take care, all. God bless. Okay. Bye, bye. So, um, we're really we're really in a in a in a mess here. I I I, I uh, I'm concerned about the very same things that you guys have been talking about, and especially the vote um, the vote packing and 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 so on. But I'm also I don't know. How to stop it? I mean, it, it, even the, even the post office itself said that uh, you know they whatever they are charged with, they will they will faithfully do. And uh, well, you know, everybody knows that they're they're not going to be able to do it. Uh, so, Dr. Larry, uh, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. What is it? It's the postal union. It's the postal union. My father was a postmaster. You can't even fire the people without an act of Congress almost unless they shoot somebody. It's, it's a union. The unions are on the Democrat side 90% of the time. So what is it going to be? One for you, two for me, one for you, two for me. I wouldn't trust the post office as far as I could throw them. Well, well the, fact that, the fact that you can't fire government employees – Goes way beyond the post office. It goes all through oh, yeah. government. But yeah. uh, absolutely. Uh, but uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a, a, a policy that uh, handled some of that, and I think uh, it needs to be thought about by some of our political leaders, particularly in, uh, throughout the cabinets. Uh, Hoover, uh, in, in when he was uh, head of the FBI, would get uh, angry at, at certain FBI agents for screwing up. And uh, he'd just tell them, call them, tell them, pack your bags. You're going to Butte, Montana. And any <laughs> any agent who ended up in Butte, Montana, you knew that he was on the on the bad list for J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, these days, uh, I think it's not a bad idea for cabinet secretaries to realize, okay, if you can't hire them, you can at least transfer uh, from not necessarily to Butte, but to Gary, Indiana, or to some other wonderful, uh, beautiful spot in the world. I think that these days uh, Butte, Montana would be pretty darn attractive compared to yeah, some, of the, <laughs> some of the things that are going on. So, and by uh, the way, I'm not I'm not disparaging all postal workers. I am disparaging the fact that it is a union, 
and the unions are usually siding with the Democrats. So why do I want them to be in charge of my my election? Yeah, well, so what's the, what's the answer? Well, the American people are eventually going to stand up. This Eventually, the American people will stand up. Now, I'm hoping we get four more years of Trump, but you know what? He only gets really two because he becomes a lame duck, duck president after that, even though he'll run it as hard as he can. But two years, then we're going to have the same problem, but again, escalated to another level. Um, until the American people stand up and say enough is enough, I don't think there is a solution. But guys, he's only the president of the United States, and the president is, is the chief of the of, of chief of, of, of armed forces and uh, the head uh, official. But we are a federal system, and it's up to the governors and the local mayors to do their job. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing an abdication of authority uh, by uh, some of these uh, characters at the local level that, frankly, go way beyond anything that the president of the United States can handle. Uh, if, if you have an idiot uh, as mayor of Seattle who says it's going to be the summer of love that turns into massive riots, and Portland uh, goes on for three, over three months in riots, uh, that's not Trump's fault. That's the mayor's fault. That's the governor's Correct. fault. And then when you have the attorneys generals from those states and the local communities that won't prosecute any of the people that are in cahoots with the mayor's ideology or agenda, then you've got to – I mean it's infiltrated every level of government, even up to the Supreme Court. And the people are paying attention, and they've got to start paying attention and get better leaders. I, I, I was quite uh, impressed, frankly, with, with the fact that uh, Trump really implemented the whole idea of uh, of the of the uh, republic, where the states had a lot of responsibilities, and 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 I thought I thought he did a good job of getting that kind of going, you know, in 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 in, uh, in, in lay terms, and. Uh, and you know, and then by George, what happened was that he uh, it, it it all went sour because it turns out that all these people that we we had in these lower uh, the state government uh, level, which is supposed to have all that power according to the Constitution, uh, they turn out to be a bunch of duds, and and I just I I'm 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 kind of uh, a Amazed at what at, at at the I'm not amazed at it, but I guess I guess one of the things that has happened is that we we now understand how important it is to have all of these uh, uh, lower uh, or the state and local uh, uh, ele- elections uh, running in a reasonable way because they. Um, they really do have a lot of power in this in in this republic. Yes, they do. Very unlimited money, unlimited money from the likes of George Soros and other people who who get uh, progressive quote unquote uh, people elected to office, and that's what's happened to Virginia in the last two years. 
Well, we also had a caller that uh, left a comment saying that Trump told the North Carolinians to vote twice, once by mail and once in person. I thought he was uh, warning people that that's, that's what could happen. I don't but, think so. I, don't, I doubt that he said that. I, I do, too. And I'd be willing to bet anything he did not say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard him say something that she might be referring to, but but what it was was uh, he was saying that this is one of the dangers that we have, is that people might do that. You know, go ahead and vote by in person, and then vote uh, by mail. And uh, that was, you know, Doctor, the, the Democrats are doing everything they can. They're laying the groundwork so that if Trump were to win, he would be an Ill- illegitimate president. They're doing everything from the mailboxes that have been stolen, which is a bunch of hogwash. If you know what happens every year, they move mailboxes. Um, Obama moved 14,000 mailboxes and took them up and put new ones and replaced them. Um, But they're laying all this groundwork, and they will continue to do so until after the election to make sure that he's an illegitimate president if they could. They did their best for the first four years. Uh, I hope he gets another four years where they can keep trying. Bob, can I ask you a question? Can I ask him a question, Doc? Sure. I got this. uh, Let me ask you this real quick. Um, see, I don't believe necessarily 100% that Biden is even going to be the president, even if he wins. I mean, I've always said that he's a straw man, but I'm not even sure that he doesn't get something before then. And, Bob, you would know the answer to this. Let's just say all of a sudden, a month out, he gets COVID really bad, and he has to drop out. Does the DNC go to the electoral the, the um their party leaders um, and then have a closed meeting and pick another person? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. I, I've, I've had this discussion uh, in, and uh, I think it it depends on the timing. If it's at the last second, I don't see how I get good. And if, if he's incapacitated, I guess uh, his VP choice just steps up and, and takes the reins. Well, but she's in, uh, but remember she's not the vice she's not the vice president though she's just on the ticket. So I'm wondering if well, the well, DNC she's has on the ticket, but the DNC can ratify her. I mean, obviously nothing can happen without the DNC's approval. Uh, and, right. and yes, I guess they could try to push the election back, but I don't think that's going to happen. It can't be done constitutionally. Uh, but here's another problem for you. Uh, if you are right, and if they can't count the votes in time, uh, and if they don't have a declared winner uh, by the time uh, the new Congress convenes in January, uh, I'm told that if Nancy Pelosi uh, is elected Speaker, she could end up being president. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That happened once. That would, that would be another horrible thing. But see, here's why I'm asking you that question, Bob, is that for the last two years, I, I have to research about 60 to 80 articles of research every single night. In the last two years, everything I'm researching, all of a sudden this thing pops up. Would you vote for Michelle Obama? Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. However, the lady that didn't want to be involved in politics did her DNC speech, God bless her. But then all of a sudden in the last couple of days, now she's come out with a podcast um, 
splitting the country more on racial divides. And I'm just wondering if something happened to Biden, could it be possible? Because she would automatically win. There's no question about that. Could she actually not campaign for president and be picked by the DNC at a at a you know an event or something that they have to do because Biden is incapacitated? Is that possible? Was what I was well, curious about. Well, we're, yeah, listen, I, gentlemen, I we're, we're out of time. We're, unfortunately, we're out of time, and uh, and uh, I want to thank you all for uh, coming on and uh, giving us a very. Uh, a very intelligent and interesting uh, period, and this is Dr. Larry uh, uh, saying good night and God bless America.